The good friends of Jackson Elias would like to thank our backers for funding the podcast. If you would like to become a good friend of the good friends of Jackson Elias, just follow the Patreon link from blasphemoustomes.com. It is taught. Of course he's dead. The dosage was too large. You killed him. No, I did not. I gave him life. Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And wait a minute, what? what's this? Another friend of Jackson Elias? Oh hello, I'm uh, Mike Mason. Yeah, Mike's joining us today to talk about today's topic, which are two films by the director Stuart Gordon. What are they, Scott? Tell us. <laughs> Oh, well, if you're just going to put me on the spotlight. It, right. This week we're going to talk about two of our favourite Stuart Gordon films, Reanimator and From Beyond. Well, one of the, our favourites and From Beyond. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> repulsion all over again. <laughs> Let's not go that far, Matt. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. Alright, so let's start off with our word of the week. It is a week and you can see Scott's shoulders sag. This is a regular feature now, Scott. And it's a regular feature that when I say word of the week, you, you frown and look disappointed. I, is is this some cunning way of trying to push us into a weekly schedule, just so that our release schedule matches the name of this segment? You're overthinking it. Is there a problem with calling it Word of the Week, Mike? On a fortnightly broadcast. Um, well, I guess you could have Word of the Fortnight, but that's not... It's not very good, is it? It's not sexy, really, is it? And you're going for sexy, I believe, with this podcast. Of, We're all oh, about yes. that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Can't you see? Yes. You think I'd be wearing this much baby oil if we weren't? Well, I didn't want to say, but yeah. <laughs> okay, so this week's word is... Eldritch. And they don't get much more Lovecraftian than Eldritch. I, I, I was going through Lovecraft stories looking for examples of Eldritch, and in just about every story that I looked at, he used it multiple times. Yeah, I think that, that somebody has gone through and listed the popularity of his kind of Lovecraftian word use, and Eldritch comes out pretty close to the top. Yeah. And it's a fairly generic one that you can apply quite easily in lots of ways. So let's just have a quick definition. What does it mean? It's an adjective. It means unearthly, supernatural, or eerie. And let's face it, that is a word you can use an awful lot in Lovecraft. And Lovecraft did use it an awful lot in Lovecraft. <laughs> in fact, whenever he used it, he was using it in Lovecraft. That's, that's just Eldritch, that is. Is that a good use of the word, Scott? That's just that, Eldritch, that, that is? That, that's, going to be my, that's going to be my example for this segment, yes. Marvellous. And should we have an example from the master himself? And I'm not talking... I don't mean you, Scott. I mean H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> oh. And here's an example from The Call of Cthulhu. 
The thing cannot be described. There is no language for such abysms of shrieking and immemorial lunacy, such eldritch contradictions of all matter, force and cosmic order. The colour out of space with an associative sense goaded of to feverish heights he thought unaccountably of what he had seen upstairs good god what eldritch dream world was this into which he had blundered another appearance in the dreams in the witch house sometimes he would take walks through shadowy tangles of unpaved musty smelling lanes where eldritch brown houses of unknown age leaned and tottered and leered mockingly through narrow small paned windows and from the shadow out of time. And all the while cold fingers of damp vapour clutched and picked at me, and that eldritch damnable whistling shrieked fiendishly above all the alternations of Babel and silence in the whirlpools of darkness around. If you were to try to use the word eldritch in an everyday sentence, how would you go about it? The lead singer of the Sisters of Mercy is Andrew Eldritch. <laughs> I win. That's <laughs> <laughs> just cheating. I think it's one you can slip in when you're running Call of Cthulhu pretty easily. Yes. So, uh, you know, if they're, if they're stalking through a graveyard, you can describe the Eldritch shadows looming over them. Yeah, I think the nice thing is, as you said at the start of this segment, it is such a generic word that you can just slot it into descriptions just for the sound of it, which, you know, let's face it, is pretty much what Lovecraft did. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mr. West, this is our eminent brain researcher and grant machine, Dr. Carl Hill. I know your work, Dr. Hill, quite well. Your theory on the location of the will and the brain is interesting. Though derivative of Dr. Gruber's research in the early 70s, so derivative, in fact, that in Europe it's considered plagiarized. And your support of the 12-minute limit on the life of the brainstem after death. Six to 12 minutes, Mr. Uh... West. Herbert West. Moving on to our main topic, who is Stuart Gordon? If you were to try to pick a filmmaker who was associated with Lovecraft more than anyone else, it would really have to be Stuart Gordon. He's made a number of adaptations over the years, starting with The Reanimator in 1985 and uh, moving on as recently as his adaptation of uh, The Dreams of the Witch House for the Masters of Horror TV series about ten years ago. But he's made a fair number over the years, uh, as well as the two we've mentioned. Uh, he's done From Beyond, Castle Freak, which was roughly based on The Outsider, but not really that you'd notice. The Evil Clergyman, which was sort of lost to history for a long time, it was made for an anthology film in the 1980s, and has apparently resurfaced uh, in recent years, but I have yet to be able to track it down. And Dagon, uh, which is another one of our favourites, but uh, we're not going to have time to talk about that this segment. Another time, maybe. Another time, I think, yeah. We'll Did try and you... combine it with something else from Innsmouth. Probably worth noting he's been involved in some probably more famous films as well, as in he um, co-wrote or had a hand in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yes, yeah, he co-created that and was involved with the TV series as well. Yes, he's also done a few adaptations of Poe's work, uh, The Pit and the Pendulum, and an adaptation of The Black Cat, uh, again for Masters of Horror. Uh, some years ago, well, I think about six or seven years ago, he was supposed to be doing an adaptation of The Thing on the Doorstep, which unfortunately seems to have fallen through. Which, yeah, personally, I think is a real shame because I'm given 
the sort of sexual aspects that he tends to bring into Lovecraft, I, I can't think of anyone who'd be a better choice. That'd be for, great. Yeah, yeah for, uh, for making that. Yeah, I, I, it would be a deeply fucked up film. Unlike all the others. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One notable difference that I've noticed with Stuart Gordon's films is that he tends to put H.P. Lovecraft in the credits right at the start. So it's H.P. Lovecraft's reanimator. It's H.P. Lovecraft's From Beyond. Yeah. And I, I guess think... that was because he was a, a small-time director. Those were his early films. So he was kind of leaning on the, the reputation of Lovecraft uh, to, to kind of get the message out. Well, that was still quite an unusual thing because in 1985, when this came out, I mean, you know, apart from fans of the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game and fans of you know horror fiction uh, who'd, who'd been exposed to Lovecraft's work, Lovecraft wasn't really that big a name. His fame has grown since then, in no small part to things like Reanimator. But yeah, putting Lovecraft's name in in big letters over uh, the title of Reanimator was really, I think, quite a, a brave thing to do at that time, or quite an unusual thing. I think it was also inspired um, by Roger Corman uh, and Roger Corman's uh, Edgar Allan Poe series. Stuart Gordon uh, wanted to kind of um, mirror that, effectively, that kind of film series of stories based on a you know a literary author. And did Corman make more of a thing of it being Poe? Yes, it was Edgar Allan Poe's Black Cat, Edgar Allan Poe's Pit and the Pendulum. (laughs) Even Edgar Allan Poe's The Haunted Palace. Which was actually Lovecraft's... um, In the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Yeah. Yes, which was actually the first film adaptation of Lovecraft. Almost all of his great adaptations of Lovecraft were written by Dennis Pawley, and a lot of them produced by Brian Yasner, who uh, also went on to produce the sequels, well, in fact, write and direct the sequels to Reanimator, uh, as well as, you know, for example, Society, with one of the great body horror films of the 80s. Certainly in the early days, a lot of his work was done in collaboration with Jeffrey Combs as well. He, he was... Uh, Gordon's default leading man, less so these days, though he did star as Edgar Allan Poe in the adaptation of The Black Cat. We're going to discuss two of Gordon's Lovecraft adaptations in detail today, Reanimator and From Beyond. As we've done with other film reviews, we're going to split our discussion into half. So for the first part of this, we're going to give a fairly spoiler-free overview. We're not going to ruin anything. Not that there are any great twists or surprises in these films, but we'll, we'll try to keep away from giving you know, details of, of big revelations at the end and uh, the, the climax of the films. Then we'll give a warning partway through, and then we'll launch into a no-holds-barred, spoiler-laden discussion. No! Did you see him, Dan? He listened to me. It made a conscious act. He heard you as an animal would. No, you can't be serious. Well, you may be right. It had probably been dead too long. It wasn't fresh enough. And the first film on our list, Reanimator. So what's uh, Reanimator about? Well, it starts with Herbert West at uh, medical school in Zurich. And uh, there's a pre-title sequence which uh, effectively sets up the whole film in, in terms of uh, what, you, what you're letting yourself in for. However, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Uh, but it cuts to Miskatonic University in New England, where West has now moved to further his studies and he rents a room with a uh, with a fellow medical student called Dan Kane, who's already involved with the uh, the dean uh, the dean of the school's daughter. Things quickly descend into experimentation. The two involved in numerous escapades of um, following up Herbert West's research into reanimation of the dead. 
I, I love the way that uh, that West draws Kane into this, which is arranging for the accidental death of Kane's cat, yeah. and then so basically. I mean, it's never stated outright, but he has very much. I mean, the fact that the fridge is open in his room, with the, with the uh, the body of the cat in there, he's very much obviously set this up so that it's all discovered, so that he can draw Dan into things, uh, and then you know just demonstrating by bringing this cat back from the dead twice, uh, with quite unfortunate consequences. And the the girlfriend is kind of repulsed by all this, but Kane, it just kind of buys into it. Really, he's a little kind of standoffish at first, but then he kind of just well, I think he has empirical proof because he, there is there is that scene where Herbert West says, you know, you you need to work with me, and he says, oh, I've listened to all you've said, and I don't believe you. You could have knocked the cat out, and, yeah, and it's and it's not dead. <laughs> And, and so that's when Herbert does a, a live demonstration. Yeah, so this incredibly mutilated cat that just lies there on the slab and shrieks. Mm-hmm. But we, we've actually been set up for this earlier than this because uh, the first time we're introduced to Kane, he's actually trying to save the life of a flatlining patient. Uh, and you know, he's been told by uh, his, uh, his supervisor at the hospital to give up and just call it, and is refusing to. So we, we've had it established that this is someone who just does not believe in the supremacy of death. We also have the autopsy fairly early on that Dr Hill is conducting, uh, and both Kane and West are students under Dr Hill. Herbert West kind of speaks out against Hill's assertion that the, the brain sort of dies a few minutes after death and that, you know, nothing yeah. could be done after that. There's a wonderful scene in the classroom where um, Dr Hill is expounding on his theory. There's a beat every moment that um, West breaks his pencil and distracts uh, Hill's <laughs> train of thought. And Hill's wonderful line, next time, Mr West, I suggest you get a pen. Yeah. And, and the other great line. Oh yes, the classic as, as, line. As, uh, Hill is, as Dr. Hill, the demonstrator and teacher, is, uh, is operating on, on the uh, cadaver's head and removing the, 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 scalp, the yeah. scalp. What's it like, Scott? Uh, yeah, he describes it as not unlike peeling a large orange. We get something like that in uh, Dagon as well. I've got yes. about to say the yeah. same thing, of yeah. course. Yeah. Yes, there's a, a scene uh, yeah, that really... Uh, Really gives you that experience, really. Yes. Poor, poor incomprehensible Spanish man has facelifted. <laughs> <laughs> Hill effectively turns Dean Halsey against Weston Kane, getting them kicked out of the Miskatonic Medical School. Um, but obviously, that's not going to stop our two heroes. Certainly not. <laughs> and uh, they obviously sneak back into the morgue to continue with their experimentation. So far, we're not that far from Lovecraft's original story, Herbert West Reanimator, because we've got West. And Kane were both well. I'm not sure is Kane in the original story. I think Kane is. I, well, Kane is. The, I, I believe the narrator in right. the West Reanimator, though you know, being a fairly typical Lovecraftian uh, narrator, we never actually learn his name. And of course, there's no girlfriend. No. Oh God, no. And but, it's the, the original story being set in the circa First World War era, whereas mm. this is a more well modern day in inverted commas, but at least modern day when it was set. Yeah. Yeah. When it was made, rather. There's, there's not much change since the 80s, so it's fine. The 80s have happened? <laughs> so, so I'm told. Okay. The Herbert West Reanimator, if I remember correctly, actually has a segment that's set during the First World War. Mm. Uh, yes, with yeah, the two, the in two the of them working as battlefield medics and, and experimenting on corpses there. Which they actually draw upon in the sequel to yes. Reanimator, in The Bride of Reanimator. Yeah, it's kind of a Bride of Reanimator in a lot of ways draws on more of Herbert West Reanimator than Reanimator does. I've seen films one and three, I've not seen two. It's quite a lot of fun. It's certainly better than three. Yeah, but 
I mean, you can say lots of bad things about 3, and you'd be relatively justified in doing so, but 3 has the absolutely wonderful redeeming feature of that end title sequence. Mm. With uh, uh, Herbert West in it has been experimenting with reanimating body parts. And Just one parts. Of, yeah, and one of the things that he's reanimated is a severed penis. And there is this wonderful end title sequence of the, the severed pe- reanimated penis battling a rat. I, what more do you want from a horror film than yeah than, than than rat on reanimated cock action? It's what good people pay good money for. Whilst they're experimenting in the morgue, going back to the plot, unfortunately Dean Housey comes down and discovers them in in mid process, and uh, obviously is uh, none too happy. But he comes in at just at the wrong moment, unfortunately, just after they've actually um, reanimated one of the corpses in the morgue. Who has gone berserk. Who has gone berserk. And unfortunately, Dean Housie is on the end of that berserkness. Um, but it does present uh, West and Kane with a new opportunity of a new subject who's somewhat fresher to uh, reanimate. One thing that we haven't really gone into, which is why Halsey was so quick to turn against Kane, is the fact that Hill sort of poisoned Halsey's mind against Kane because Hill himself has got a bit of an obsession with, with Megan, uh, Dean Halsey's daughter. Uh, really quite a creepy one, and it gets much creeper as the film goes on. I mean, there's a whole question of who is the real villain in the piece, in the film, because obviously you start with West. If you believe what he says, he's actually trying to do a noble cause of, you know, eliminating death. And although he does some quite despicable things in the process, um, and Hill, who is quite a seedy, quite clearly nasty character, and that is obviously portrayed further through the film, and, and there is this, Hill has this certain, it's never really out overtly explained, but he seemed to have this sort of mesmerism, hypnotism trick to make people bend to his will. That's actually something which has gone into a bit more in the extended edition. There was an extended version that was put out largely because the, uh, the version that was released on home video in the 80s was so badly cut that the running length became quite short. So they ended up restoring a lot of the, uh, the cut material uh, sorry, not the censored material, but the stuff that had been cut for pacing and running time. And uh, creating a, a separate version like that. And then this extended version came out on DVD and Blu-ray a few years back, which has got all the censored material in in conjunction with this you know, previously cut material. And some of the previously cut material does actually go into a, a bit more into Hill's uh, sort of hypnotic powers. You see him using his powers of hypnosis and suggestion on people even before they're reanimated and lobotomized and stuff like that. It occurs to me that Dr. Hill in Reanimator is quite a lot like Dr. Pretorius in From Beyond, which you know, we'll come on to. Yeah, he's, so he's a lecherous manipulator, and, and so is Pretorius. Yeah. yeah. It is signposted a little bit when he discusses, I mean, it's only think one scene and maybe a thorough reference in another one, where he discusses sections of the brain that control will. Yes. So it is something that it's, even in the main release, it's it's there, but somewhat out of context with the rest of it. But with that, very particularly, he's, you know, that's setting up all the stuff with the uh, lobotomies that he carries out on the uh, reanimated subjects with his laser scalpel, mm-hmm. making them susceptible to his will. In the extended version, you actually see him uh, using hypnosis on Dean Halsey, for example, uh, over dinner to try to implant ideas about how Cain is bad for his daughter. 
Yeah. See, I haven't seen the extended yeah. version. I've only seen the main one. You're not actually missing that much. The additional scenes don't really add much, and they do slow the pacing down quite badly. I, I actually recommend against the, the extended version. Yeah, I don't always think extended versions are the best versions, really. Um, sometimes that stuff was cut out for a reason. Yeah. Because it doesn't need any more explanation of why Dean Halsey stops his daughter seeing Kane, really. I mean, that's it, it's pretty apparent. Yeah, you... Predictive father, done. Yeah. Yeah, and you do get a little bit of, of um, Hill sort of setting that up. Uh, it's just you don't get the hypnotic aspect. Well, we're not looking for deep complexities of character here. <laughs> no. No. Really, that takes us towards the end of the film, and obviously trying not to spoiler it here, but you've got the setup between uh, you've got Hill versus West, both obsessed in, in slightly different ways, uh, and uh, but Hill effectively gaining the upper hand towards the end of the movie and um, setting up a a kind of a grand uh, granol end epic scene uh, with a veritable army of the well not quite army that's going too far but uh, <laughs> uh, quite a lot of undead a bunch of them a bunch of reanimated corpses under his control uh, and luring um, luring western kane having already uh, um, kidnapped uh, dean Halsey's daughter they, they come to rescue, well, certainly Kane comes to rescue her. We'll, we'll go into that in more detail in the spoiler-laden section later. It's probably worth warning people if they haven't seen Reanimated before. The film is 30 years old, but it is still quite shockingly violent and gory in places. It hasn't dated as much as a lot of films from the 80s have. And it's, still, it's got a sense of campy fun to it, and it is probably as much a comedy as it is a horror film, a very black comedy. But there is some stuff in there that you know certainly was cut out for the early video releases. You know, some... Um, Sexual coercion, uh, yeah, a lot of um, yeah, really quite dodgy sexual stuff. Yeah, an awful lot of really bloody violence. I mean, of course, one of the things um, Gordon and the team set out to do when they were putting Reanimator together was to outdo horror films of the time, and they would meet um, weekly on a Friday evening and watch pretty much every horror film that had been put out in the last ten years. So that would include things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and uh, and they, you know, they had a real goal to kind of, you know, we want to raise the bar, we want to push it as far as we think we can, um, which obviously led down the road to problems, well, potential problems with the MPA, and um, and the fact that the the film was actually released unrated. Yes, I, I remember actually seeing it at the cinema in New York uh, when it came out in 1985, and very few cinemas would show it at the time because it was released without a rating. Uh, and, yeah, it, it really was something quite different. I think yeah. Evil Dead had come along and, and re already raised the bar in yes. terms of blood count. I think they, they literally just went, well, we can do more. <laughs> I think that's largely moderated by the kind of campy, kind of schlock horror presentation of it, though. So it's yes. almost comedic. It's kind of over the top. You end up laughing at it. Um, it's not as gritty and horrific as it might be. But at the same time, I mean, some of the reanimated corpses that you see, I mean, as well as being quite badly mutilated and decayed in some cases, th there's something about the presentation of them, the fact that they seem to be in pain and distressed by their conditions, that they move strangely. The, you know, the, the movements of some of them are just quite bizarre, like they're you know, almost alien creatures trying to work out how human bodies work or something like that. The overall effect, I found, you know, even now, is quite disquieting. 
Mm. Well, you get that scene where they're when they first go into the morgue and they're looking for the freshest corpse. <sighs> yeah. And and literally they they're looking, reading the the tags on each of the bodies, and you know what, how the person died, and you know one, and they and they literally go through the the. Uh, but, you know, the causes, and there's a road crash victim, there's a heart failure, and shotgun blast, shotgun to, the blast to the head. So, and of course, you know, <laughs> as you're watching this, all of these characters are going to come, and, and what they do is they do portray them each very differently in terms of how, as Scott says, in terms of how they, oh, I really thought how they come that. alive. Yeah, yeah. And also, the um, Gordon and uh, the special effects team um, did spend time with um, pathologists and uh, uh, actually trying to make the the special effects of the corpses look like, uh, so hence the different colorations and. Uh, and it, yeah, it really paid off because yeah, I mean if you're at all familiar with crime scene photography or you know pictures from path labs and so on, then yeah, the, these these dead bodies do look like real dead bodies. But as uh, Paul says, uh, it is a, a healthy, heavy dose of comedy throughout the entire film, which is pers- purposefully there. I think um, uh, they, uh, I think Gordon is very much is of the train of thought that um, tension uh, is relieved by comedy and comedy sets up tension. Um, yeah, comedy and horror work well when the horror is... There is a horrific aspect to it and it is genuinely scary at times and the comedy is genuinely funny and the two merge really well as we see in like Shaun of the Dead or, or yes. films like that. Shaun of the Dead is more overtly a comedy... But uh, but there's some but, but, genuinely kind of bits that would fit well in a you know early Romero films and so on. You know when the, the oh, guy absolutely. gets pulled through the the pub window and all his entrails are being pulled out by zombies. And we should probably talk about the antifreeze as well, the reanimation fluid. Oh, that, that's actually antifreeze. Well, I'm not sure if it is, but it, 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 it always makes me I've think about it. I've never seen antifreeze. It looks like that. It's, it's yeah. about to glow a little bit more. Oh, you yeah. might put that stuff in your car, Mike. <laughs> I, have, I have bought an antifreeze bottle, and as I was pouring it, I did think to myself, this looks like reanimation fluid. But, did but, you think, I wonder what would happen if I injected this into a corpse? I, I didn't go that far. Right. I, I'm not I, saying I, I didn't I have the thought. I've, but had some, <laughs> I've had some gamers at my table that I could try that on, I think. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think, I, I think that about most fluids I pick up. <laughs> But yes, that reanimation fluid is iconic, the sort of glowing greenish-yellow bottle. Uh, you can tell just looking at the fluid that it's sinister and wrong. Well, I think one of the first times we see it is there's, there's the, the open fridge in, uh, in, in West's apartment, and there's a dead cat on one shelf and a glowing green bottle of luminous fluid on the <laughs> shelf. Yeah, you can tell bad things are going to happen. Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, I mean, as I approach things, small um, aspects drink related. I have found a cocktail that works fantastically well if you light it up from uh, light it up from the bottom. That it does glow very similarly. Nice. <laughs> yeah, lo- lots of pineapple juice and coconut rum. Reanimator is also blessed with an absolutely fantastic title sequence. I mean, as we've mentioned before, you see Lovecraft's name splashed up there uh, in big letters, which was you know a fairly jarring and wonderful thing back in 1985, anyway. But the whole thing is this this psychedelic tour through Grey's Anatomy uh, that is just absolutely beautiful. Interesting use of psychedelic. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, because the the title music is. Shall we say somewhat derivative? Uh, it's isn't, it the same? isn't it the same? <laughs> yeah, I, th- there may be a couple of notes different, but it is pretty much the theme from Psycho. It differs from the theme from Psycho in much the same way as Vanilla Ice's Ice Ice Baby's ba- baseline differs from Under Pressure. Yes, yes. 
And the other thing that happens fairly early on, which you know just amused me, is the fact that you know people talk a lot about in Game of Thrones this whole thing about sex position, that you know you have a couple of people sitting around in bed or naked or or having sex or whatever when you want to give an information dump to the audience. Uh, at the beginning, where you're learning a bit about the Miskatonic University and the relationship between you know Dean Cain and Megan Halsey and the fact that it's you know not going to be approved of by her father and so on, they do the whole thing while messing around in bed. And it is one of the earliest examples of sex position I can think of. I still yeah. keep thinking sex position. You're always thinking about that, Matt. That's your trouble. <laughs> hey, one track mine. <laughs> and you say people are always talking about this, Scott. I've, you're the only person I've heard talk about sex position. This is what, a term I've never come across before. Oh, you haven't lived, Paul. You haven't lived. True enough. Two kids, he hasn't got time. <laughs> Ah, such easy prey. From the makers of Reanimator, from beyond. Now we move on to From Beyond. Let's move on to the second of our two films then. I'm watching for Paul's reaction here to see, gauge the level of enthusiasm. No, I did quite enjoy it. I just didn't think it was as good as Reanimator. I'm no. not, not, not going to pan it. No, Reanimator Re sets the bar pretty high. It does. But, yeah, immediately following Reanimator, Stuart Gordon and many of the same people involved. I mean, uh, Dennis Pauly, again, is the writer. Brian Yasner is, is creative producer and co-writer. Uh, Jeffrey Combs is the star. Barbara Crampton, who played Megan Halsey uh, in Reanimator, all came back and did another Lovecraft adaptation. And this time, they went for something with even less source material to draw on. Well, in fact, the source material all plays out in the prologue before the credits. So we get the whole of From, From Beyond Lovecraft's story... Uh, with the Tilling, well, it's not the Tillinghast resonator, is it? In this, it's the Pretorius resonator. But yes, um, we get that whole story, and it's like, oh, is that it? Oh no, here's the credits. Now here's the rest of the film. So it's kind of extrapolated mm. from from yeah, that. But the, the film is almost a sequel to the story. In a it way. is really, yeah. Well, I yeah. mean, considering the story is what about four or five pages long, yeah, you, you'd be hard pressed to make a full, a full film adaptation of it. So Pe I think Peter Jackson and manage it. <laughs> <laughs> As mentioned in the story, it's referred to as the Tillingas resonator, whereas this time they're looking at the uh, just the resonator or the Pret Dr. Pretorius's resonator. The story really begins when Tillingas has been taken into custody for the murder of Dr. Pretorius. Yes, in that opening scene, we, we do see them activate the resonator and you know the creatures uh, manifest from the other world as they see them through the pineal gland and one comes along and just bites off Pretorius's head. Mm -hmm. I mean, Pretorius, one of the main characters in the film, is dead before the title sequence comes up. Mm -hmm. Even then, you don't, from memory, you don't actually see his head being bitten off. No, no. no that's, it, you see his headless corpse and then you see... Yeah. Uh, I certainly didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you, I had a slight technical issue, I have to admit. I, I put your DVD in the machine, Scott. My, my machine is very reliable, clearly, because it wouldn't play Revolution properly. And this time, it didn't really want to play... Well, it wouldn't play From Beyond Flat Out because it was the wrong region. Right. Uh, so I went onto YouTube through the PS3, and uh, I found a version of uh, From Beyond, the whole thing. <laughs> it was a special version. It was it? a special version. <laughs> Well, it started off with a little clip of Stuart Gordon saying, oh, this is like the, the full release, uh, it's a one-cut version or whatever. And I thought, oh, great. 
but why is it only an hour and 14 minutes long? <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think it was, I don't think anything was chopped out. Just that times people moved really quickly. <laughs> it was like one of those old uh, old black and white films from you know from uh, pre-war when people would sort of march along really uh, the wrong frame rate and just <laughs> be sound, marching really quickly to the sound of someone hammering away on the piano yeah. very quickly. <laughs> um, but the the the, uh, the dialogue sounded fine. But anyway, it was condensed into an, an hour and a quarter. But not only that, there was this kind of oval shape in the middle of the screen, which was like an sort of almost like an eye. And that was lit properly, <laughs> but around that it was kind of slightly greyed out. That, that, that was just your pineal gland waking up. <laughs> <more. laughs> well, I sort of thought at the start, I thought, oh, this is a bit weird. I thought, yeah, but it is a bit weird. Maybe that's how it's meant to be. Maybe I'm looking through the Tillingar's resonator. Maybe it's like a special effect. And afterwards, I started to doubt that, especially when I watched a few reviews of it afterwards. All <laughs> 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 perfectly fine. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so my, my views of it may be slightly tinged by that, this experience. But I still enjoyed it. So your PS3 is a resonator. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, dear. We then have, or enter Dr. Catherine McMichaels, um, who is advocating that Tillingast is not insane, perhaps, or that the way to draw out information of what did happen to Pretorius... Um, rather than lock him away in an insane asylum where obviously nothing will be done to him apart from maybe the old occasional lobotomy or um, shock treatment, um, is to make him, the sensible thing, relive what happened that yes, night. Yes, let's go and do it again. That thing, yeah. it drove you mad. Let's go and check that it drove you mad and it's really real. It's, yeah. the, it's the right thing to do. It yeah. is. It's what any right-thinking Cthulhu investigator should do, but Absolutely. almost certainly wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, would you do that as an investigator? They use this spell and they summon something and, and the whole area before Miles Wild has been completely blackened and flattened. People have had their heads eaten off. We're not sure what happened, but the best thing to do would be to start reading it again now. Yeah, what was yeah. this? Summon Cthulhu. What? <laughs> Actually, having said that, if Matt was in the game, he would almost certainly do that. So he would and, read and, the book. And I would as well, yeah. Would you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, isn't it you? It says, how many, cam- how many campaigns have I ended by the words, right, you summoned Cthulhu, sheets please. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that we should probably mention about what's going on in the, the psychiatric hospital is that there's this conflict between uh, Dr. McMichaels who's come in and the resident there, Dr. Block, which then becomes a bit you know, more important as it goes on. Dr. Block very much sees uh, Tillinghast as insane and wants to treat him and Croft, sorry, McMichaels is the one who's, who's looking at trying to get him out and and uh, see what actually happened. She becomes convinced, but especially that Tillinghast is not mad by the fact that she does a CAT scan on him and sees his, his pineal gland has become enlarged, which again becomes quite important later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so of course they head back to the the house where the experiments have been taking place. Oh, they're but they're accompanied now with a uh... oh with comic relief. Yes, yes. Yeah. Detective Bubba Brownie, played by the the wonderful Ken Forey. Seriously, his name was Bubba. Yeah. Hey. Well, no, that was his nickname. I yeah, people call me one. Bubba. Yes. I don't remember that bit. Yeah. Who uh, people may remember from uh, Dawn of the Living Dead. Uh, yes, yeah, Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> Dawn of mm-hmm. the Dead, even. Yeah. yeah, one of the few survivors. Mm-hmm. Promptly, they start to kick the whole mess up all over again. Well, they go to plug it in, and uh, at that point, Crawford Tillinghast is kind of, he wants to destroy the machine, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Uh, but he they kind of hold him back mm-hmm. uh, and kind of convince him that, no, 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 we'll plug it in, it'll be all right. And somehow... He, he, he stops wanting to destroy the machine after that. Oh, well, well, isn't it at that point 
they they obviously start to see the effects of the resonator. Yeah. But but it's pretty quickly um, Tillingas then turns to it's coming. Yes. Yeah. And and then that kind of distracts them. I believe. And the emphasis on them all standing completely ah, still. But there is there is that kind of again it's never overtly said, but it is demonstrated that when the resonator is turned on, it, it is affecting them, not just visually, but it's stimulating them as well. Yeah, yes. especially and the pineal glands effect. grow, yeah, they, they're becoming addicted to the rush that they get from the pineal gland. And it's also, you know, as the we see later on... glands are certainly enlarging. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, precisely, they, they, they very, make a big thing of the fact that, you know, they, this then, you know, bumps up their sex drives. Uh, which yeah, but then becomes quite important later on. Which which is obviously drawn directly from the Lovecraft story. Yes, that's yeah. it's, that it's, was it's what the subtext, Lo I'm sure. It's what Lovecraft would have wanted. And that's what Pretorius's office really looked like. It was indeed just a sex dungeon. And you get that Tillingast never liked this. He he would you know there's a scene where him saying that you know he would hear Pretorius bringing these women home and the things he would do to them and how horrible it I was. I just heard the screaming. That's it. Like, apparently that was quite toned down. There was a scene that didn't make it into the film. It was supposed to open with Pretorius and his sex dungeon with uh, his latest conquest down there, uh, driving a nail into her tongue. You do get a bit of a, um, a, a sort of second-hand view. There is a short... They are watching a video... Uh, that Pretorius recorded of himself in the sex dungeon mm. uh, and you get a kind of a very quick kind of view of what he was up to without without any tongue uh, nailing. Now, what, one of the main, say, implications or main uses that McMichaels finds with the resonator is that she believes, bizarrely, that it could potentially cure schizophrenia and then decides, oh, well, everyone else is sleeping, I'll go and turn it on, because, hey, I'm on my own, I've gone away from the rest of the party, how could this possibly end badly? I think that is partially explained, because it is an addiction, yeah. and, mm. and there is a, she's lying there and she's thinking about it, and, and, it, and, and, and it, it seems to me, you know, it's very flimsy, but um, you know, it, is an, it is an addiction, and she wants to turn it on, she wants to feel like she did when the resonator was last on, and, and that's yeah. what drives her to just you know, go upstairs on her own and turn it on. Because we haven't actually said that when you, you turn the resonator on, as in the story, you see things that are around you all the time, but which you can't perceive. So there are jellyfish-type creatures. And, and, it, and importantly, they can't see you. But until you turn until it on. Well, until you turn it on and move around. Yes. Yes. And then they come and bite you in the mm -hmm. ass. <laughs> or the arm or wherever. Or your entire head off. Yes, that too. Mm -hmm. the, the, the sandworm lookalike in the basement. Mini, mini doll. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love their reactions to that. It's like, whoa, hold on. What? The Let other, me go get the, a knife. The, yeah. the other interesting thing the resonator does, that's um, when you turn it on, the, <laughs> the house is completely awash, awash in water. Yes. Yeah, where yeah. the fuck did all that water <laughs> yeah, come yeah, from? Yeah, when they're going upstairs, I was like, what the, how, where is that all coming the from? Water pouring down staircases, the cellar, you know, up to your waist in water. Um, and they turn it off, and it's all dry. There's no water, so it's a watery world. In there. Yeah, did I miss yeah. something in my kind of uh, elliptical view? Of no, the that's never of the explained. No. Right. Yeah. Well, it just looks cool. How, how does a jellyfish fly through the air? It's obviously water on the other side of the barrel. Ah, it's letting the water yeah. through. Yeah. yeah. So that must be it. Yeah. So after all this, they decide they're going to leave the house again. Mm -hmm. But yeah, do they? Do they? Hell. Well, no, they do eventually. 
Detective Brownlee insists they leave the house, but before you know, before he gets a chance to get everyone out of the house, McMichael's you know goes wandering. Uh, she ends up going to the sex dungeon and discovering all this leather clothing that Pretorius has left behind. Yeah, which formerly she seemed quite repulsed by in the video, but now she seems attracted to. Yes, uh, and so starts dressing up and all that and trying to. Uh, trying to seduce Tillinghast. Uh, Tillinghast, who actually fell foul of the creature that we mentioned in the cellar, who tried to eat his head and instead sucked all his hair off. Which, yeah. Yeah, I was like, who, who is that bald guy? Ah, oh, hmm. hold on. Oh. Oh, it is Tillinghast still. You probably would have seen it more confused. clearly if you went yeah. watching, <laughs> you probably watching, would watching the special version. <laughs> <laughs> Only you have found. <laughs> We'll have to link to that version on the, on the, on the show notes, Scott, so people can enjoy it in yes. the way I think it was meant to be enjoyed. That's right, because it is, it is swallowed whole by the mini doll in the in Oh, the he cellar. comes out of it, doesn't he? And, he yeah, well, the thing it. is, they turn the resonator off, so he just appears he, he in midair and falls yes, to the floor. Awesome. Yes. This whole thing ends up with uh, McMichael's attempting to seduce the semi-conscious Tillinghast, and then things start getting weird again. And we'll leave it there before we get into our spoiler. Well, I'll just throw again. one thing in. At that point, it seemed to be sort of almost becoming like a, a softcore porn film. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that, you know, on a reflected back on Reanimator, and that had equally kind of graphic content, but didn't really seem to stray quite as much into the kind of lascivious feel that, that From Beyond did at that point. Really? I thought so. I thought they were pretty much on the par, really, in terms of... I don't know, the tone... Uh, well, I'm, I'm, the thinking of the, I'm thinking of the extent... Well, the full version of Reanimator, I guess. Yeah. I, no, I'd say that you know, Reanimator was probably closer to the bones, actually, uh, you know, particularly with the non-consensual aspects in there. When they, they, there's sort of a non-consensual aspect as well and from beyond in that you know, McMichaels is you know, attempting to sexually use Tillinghast while he's you know, pretty out of it. But it's not quite the, you know, the, the, the interrupted rape scene that you get in Reanimator. No, but I think it was the way that she is almost seduced into doing it and she's doing it of her own volition. There's well, seemed a little... Uh... Yeah, I mean, except for the fact that, you know, it is supposed to be a reflection of the, the changes that have gone on in her pineal gland because of all this. But yeah, you're right, that is a pretext for throwing a lot of sexual content in, which makes the film a lot more commercial. Yeah. Yeah, as we've mentioned, this is an even more free adaptation than Reanimator is of its source material. Uh, just because there was so little source material to work from. Most we put plenty of source in there, though. <laughs> <laughs> the other sort of, well, not quite in joke, the other kind of jokey thing that connects between them is Gordon does seem to like having his protagonists at a house uh, numbered 666. Because in, you know, the, uh, Dean Cain's house in Reanimator is 666 Darkmoor. The house where all this goes on and from beyond is 666 Benevolent Street. Which is just such a great address. Nothing I, could go wrong on Benevolent Street. <laughs> Carolyn Purdy Gordon um, describes From Beyond um, as a movie for people who like to look in their handkerchiefs once they're blown in it. <laughs> yeah, it is a very icky film. I, there, there's less kind of straight-on gore than there is in Reanimator, but there's much more body horror and slime and monsters. Unfortunately, you know, while the practical effects and the monster effects and so on are really good and the makeup effects, there's a lot of special effects that involve double exposures and things moving through the air and so on, which, you know, by today's standards particularly, you know, quite frankly look cheap and shoddy. Yeah, but I think of their time, I think they were, you know, 
they and I remember watching at the time thinking, oh they look really cool mm-hmm. uh, but obviously we're talking what 20 30 years of almost 30. They, they look fine yeah. on the version I watched <laughs> <laughs> what what is, what is interesting is they um, when the resonator is turned on the the color tone does change they, the, and, mm-hmm. and there's a kind of a pinky purple yeah. lilac um, light is used constantly and um, I I really like that I think it looks very unnatural and otherworldly. Yeah, but it also makes everything feel much more kind of meaty and organic. Mm. Uh, it anchors everything in the flesh. Yeah. It's very similar to... I'm trying to think if it is very similar, actually. It, it seems to me very similar to the the colour that's used in Die Farbe, oh, yeah. in the, the uh, German film of The Colour Out of Space, which is black and white, apart from when you see the, the colour out of space in oh. the film. Mm-hmm. The other thing, you know, for comparing this to Reanimator, you know, to bear in mind, is that this is a much less funny film than uh, Reanimator. And, yeah, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, obviously, they're trying for a very different tone. It's a very different film. But, uh, yeah, there, there's a, a sense of fun about the excesses of Reanimator that, you know, is largely missing from this. Yeah, I think losing that sense of fun does detract from it because it's still got the same kind of over-the-top special effects and over-the-top acting and over-the-top kind of story and so on but when you take the humor away it's it, it, I think it would have been more effective if they'd have played up the humor as they did more in, in reanimated I mean, there is there is humor in it yeah. but it's it seems to me an unintentional humor mm. Mm. Uh, in, in, yeah I can Bubba Brownlee is very yeah. much there as comic relief I mean he's there as the voice of reason as well it's sort of yeah, oh yeah what, why are we doing yeah. this yeah. let's get the hell out of here but you know it, he he does you know out of all of them he's the one who sort of cracks the most jokes and gives us the comic release every now and then but that's they, instead of it being a sustained tone the way it is through Reanimator, it's you know, a, 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 an occasional thing in this. No, definitely. Spoilers! And now, Reanimator, completely spoiled. Let's return to Reanimator. What you've got set up is um, Hill and West um, versus each other. West effectively um, kills and decapitates Hill. In a, quite an interesting scene in the in the basement, uh, uh, and decapitates Hill with a shovel. But of course, you know you've got a dead headless corpse and a head, and yeah. you're Herbert West. What are you gonna do? You don't get. They don't come much fresher than that. Mm-hmm. And, and I love the line that that Herbert West has at this stage, which is parts. I've never done parts before. <laughs> I just even like when he's taking the head and he's trying to um, trying to get it to stand up in the tray. Yeah. So you go, flop. Okay. Go angle. Flop. No, oh, fuck it, no, stab! <laughs> on the letter on spike. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's just beautiful. Oh, it's a great scene. Um, but of course, what West isn't counting on is the will of Dr. Hill. Well, once who, he's reanimated the head, he's the got, head kind of controls the body, doesn't the, it? Yeah, the, the head yeah. control, which West doesn't realise. So West is talking to Hill's head on his desk. And uh, in the meantime, in, his, in the background, Hill is actually controlling his body coming up behind... Um, West and knocks him out, and uh, and then he's able to uh, obviously gain the upper hand. That that's a perfect example of a failed pushed skill rolling for Cthulhu. <laughs> so I'm trying to reanimate the head. Uh, okay, give me some kind of what would it be? Some Cthulhu, kind of, mythos uh, roll. Cthulhu mythos roll. Yeah. Oh, you fail it. Okay. Well, you push the roll and see if you can do it. Okay. I'll. D- All right. Oh, you made it this time. Okay. Well, you've you've managed to get the head talking, but I failed it. No, no, it's all fine. <laughs> <laughs> and he just swears at you. <laughs> and you don't see the, the rest of the body getting up behind you and approaching you and grabbing you. 
Guest, doctor. It's Herbert West. What are you thinking? How do you feel? So now you have Hill, who has gained the upper hand and uh, has captured Dean Halsey's daughter, Megan. He's kind of left West knocked out in his cellar, hasn't yeah. he? Yeah. yeah. yeah um, and, he, and he's controlling Dean Halsey and using him effectively as a tool you know, to go off and, and to kidnap Megan Halsey. And yes. And obviously take them to his own lab, um, where he obviously then conducts his own experiments, with both with the reanimation fluid and with his laser drill for lobotomizing oh, the, the dead. Scalpel, yes. Why was he lobotomizing the dead? To gain to, <laughs> <laughs> but he, he gains. He, well, he, <laughs> he obviously has found a way to, very... to to uh, to control them after in in, yeah. in their animated yeah. life. It, it, it is actually sort of explained in the uh, in the script. There is the explanation that Hill has discovered the location of the will in the brain, and using the laser scalpels goes around and and burns this out of the reanimated corpses, making them pliable and easy to control. If I remember right, also it's West that says, "Oh, that's another bit of um, Dr. Gruber's research that you've squandered and uh, yeah. kind of pulled away for yourself." Yes. So you have the you have the all set up for the for the climax of the movie, effectively in the in Dr. Hill's um, laboratory. Uh, with him having uh, control of uh, the corpses, the, the reanimated corpses, and um, Dean Halsey's daughter um, in his, you know, in his clutches, about to get head in more ways than one. Yeah, that, that that is really quite a disturbing scene, and this is one of the things that led to this being so heavily cut by the BBFC yes. when it was released, which is um, you know Megan Halsey waking up tied down on this autopsy slab, um, you know, with with Hill's headless body uh, holding his head out at arm's length, you know, uh, uh, trying between to perform, her legs, trying to perform cunnilingus on her. This was the point my sixteen-year-old daughter came into the room and said, "Dad, what the hell are you watching now?" <laughs> <laughs> perfect timing perfect yeah it's just the other way around to when your parents used to walk in when you were watching like a film back in the day and it would always be the goriest almost you know sexually explicit part of the film that they'd walk in and go what are you watching you can't be watching this and now my children do it there's no escape but before things can go too far you have Kane and West rushing in to save the day to save the day. Well, Kane, anyway. That's probably the, in his head anyway. But uh, yeah. uh, but of course, what they haven't counted on is Dr. Hill's control, mind control of the reanimated dead. And it's dead. a great moment when all the dead... Just They're just all erupt out. And and ripping yes. their body bags apart. Yeah. yeah. So there's a, a, a big fight. A big fight. Yes. And uh, guts everywhere. And... Um, it's a fun scene. Yeah, it's, it's oh, a, lo- that, a lot that, of guts. That yeah. fantastic bit where oh, your West gets two syringes full of. Uh, oh, I have, I have a region. theory. Yeah, overdose. <laughs> <laughs> and effectively plugs two syringes full of reanimation fluid into uh, Hill's body, which uh, then sets up a chain reaction of with his um, his guts exploding and almost being reanimated like in their own right. Yeah, yeah they, they grab West. 
around yes, the neck. They, they kind of yeah, start yeah, strangling yeah. him, don't yeah. they? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Gordon seems to like prehensile internal organs. Yes. Yeah. They, they, this is a, a running theme between this and From Beyond. But of course, during the attack, one of the uh, corpses attacks and kills Megan uh, before uh, Kane can, you know, free her and escape. But they do escape eventually. Uh, Kane carrying her dead body um, as a already in the hospital to the emergency room, where Kane is left with one choice. Yes, and and I think this is one of the most perfect endings in horror cinema. You have you know they, all the normal medical attempts to revive Megan have, have failed, and so you've got Kane standing there preparing the syringe, and then goes, as with the scene at the start, reflecting that where he couldn't couldn't uh, revive the dead patient. Yes, we get a kind of a, a, except this time he has the answer. You know, yes, uh, Herbert West's dying or supposedly dying action was to throw him the satchel with the the serum and research notes in, and so he goes to inject Megan, and we just get this wonderful fade to black where the only thing visible on the screen is the syringe of the fluid and we just see the plunger getting just the glowing green fluid yeah, yeah and, just then that. It just, and he uh, goes in and shrinks to goes to black and then there's a scream and the music starts and That's it's just a perfect perfect ending. great ending to it yeah because yeah. Yeah. you were saying there was an alternative ending Scott with, yeah. with lots of other stuff with West coming back and so on that, that's right yeah I mean, I if, if, you, that's... if you take a look on YouTube they shot an ending where instead of the fade to black Kane injects the reanimation fluid into Megan. She comes back, but you know she's wrong and she's thrashing around. And uh, there's a couple of quite disturbing bits where you know both the movement of her jaw and so on her face be- be- looks quite inhuman. You know West, uh, you know, comes back and you know he's managed to escape the the clutches of of uh, Doctor Hill and delivers this line about yeah what was it he didn't have the guts to kill me. Uh, that's the best, the best bit, really. The rest of it, I believe. But yeah, that's yes. a good line. No, it's it's a great ending. Of course, did you know that when um, uh, when the film came out, Fangoria magazine uh, was a massive fan of the film, um, and um, I think Brian Usner did a deal, and uh, they ran a competition in Fangoria magazine so you could win Doctor Hill's head from the, <gasps> the actual prop. Wow! Oh wow! Uh, some of the guys that entered, you know, did they had to do a they had to kind of create a uh, make up a special effect of some, I think, of a dead person or something like that. Um, and apparently, many of the people that entered that competition are working in in the industry now. You know, it was the, such a high bar that they uh, did. Oh, cool, nice. And we return to From Beyond this time with spoilers, lots of spoilers. Yeah, we've stopped for lunch, and now we're back to talk about From Beyond. Spoilers and all. Yep. Slightly slowed down by a stomach full of sausage and bacon. Mm. If, if you notice the energy levels dropping, it's because we're all digesting now. Yeah. Speaking of digesting and things <laughs> we eat. Yes. Yeah, yes. that that segues very nicely into the remainder of From Beyond. So Dr. Pretorius does look like something that's been half digested. He does, rather. When he comes back. Because, of course, he's, when, um, earlier on when we mentioned that Tillingas says, it's coming, it is, in fact, a monster that looks like Pretorius. Yeah. Yeah, and now, how much of Pretorius still exists in there, how much it's this creature emulating him, and it's it's not really important. Yeah, it's it's a, very it's, much a blend of the two, it seems, yeah. 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 It's, it, at the very least, it's a monster that's absorbed Pretorius's impulses uh, and personality and so on, and is representing the worst aspects of him. Yeah, so I mean, it starts off looking like Pretorius, and then as every time you then see it thereon, 
gets more and more monstrous as it progresses. Yeah. And it still there's... seems to have the hots for McMichaels. Yes. But there, there is that lovely moment where one of them touches the creature and uh, their, their hands sort of go into it like moist putty. Mm-hmm. And, yes. you know, it's a very simple visual effect. But, dear God, is it repulsive. Yes. Mm-hmm. They ba- of course, they base that, the creature on a Shoggoth. Ah, oh, really? Okay. Yes. They, 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 um, Stuart Gordon said, has said subsequently that, um, you know, um, he read Mountains of Madness and thought he really liked the idea of the creature that could just change into different ah. things and... And that's really what inspired him with the um, the Pretorius monster. Now, that's interesting because I think, you know, Shoggoth was probably also quite a big influence on John W. Campbell's Who Goes There, and hence, you know, John Carpenter's The Thing. And I was going to make some parallel between this creature and, and The Thing mm. from, mm. you know, uh, from The Thing. I was going to even say that the, the visual effects are very similar, especially when you get towards the end and Tillingast then becomes part of it, and it's... I'm going to burst out and so and then kind of rip into it and then get sucked in and so on. The last 20 minutes or so from Beyond have got a lot of great body horror in there. Uh, speaking of things getting eaten, you know, we see uh, uh, Bubba Brownlee getting eaten by a swarm of what seem to be flesh-eating locusts or bees or something. Very Candyman style. <laughs> yeah, uh, but but again, the effect there is quite repulsive. Oh, the rem- when the flies leave the remains, and yeah, uh, yeah and he's still alive awesome. there on the ground, just with most they seem of the not flesh to have eaten his head. head. Everything else yes. apart from his head, the effects were yeah. being too difficult to pull. <laughs> <laughs> we well, wouldn't but, know but, who it was. Yeah. Well, no, it, it wasn't just that, but it means that you get that that thing of him still being alive, but yes, looking there is... at most of his body being stripped away, <laughs> and that is a pretty horrific image. Oh, it's pretty, yeah, pretty horrific because it's the uh, the torchlight falls on his arms and body, yes, which attracts the the flesh eating fly things. So they've fled the house um, after having been attacked by pretty much every monster under the sun. We get to the prehensile pineal gland. Frankly, that's just. Oh. It's particularly gross when the doctor, Dr. Block, is trying to grab it with forceps. Oh, yes. And it's yes. kind of coming in and out of the hole in the middle of the, uh, middle the, of the forehead. Head, yeah. And she's like, oh, I can get, oh, oh no, it's gone back. And yeah. then it's quite horrible. Then it pops yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Tilling Gus looks particularly freaky at the stage because, yeah, he's lost his hair. Jeffrey Coombs acting weird anyway, and he can do creepy better than most actors. He was, uh, he was just getting used to, uh, used to eventually um, step forward a few years, his makeup that he would have to wear for Star Trek. That was it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's not just the fact that he's got this prehensile uh, pineal gland that's poking around. It's the fact that he's, he's suddenly acquired an appetite for brains. Mm. Well, he, need, he needs the brains, doesn't he? It's quite yes. clear that the, 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 the desire is on him that the pineal gland needs to consume the brains. I quite like it when the, the, the way we see through the pineal gland and we see you know, the world in a different way. And sometimes it, it comes out and it kind of drives him to sort of act in a certain way and then it kind of goes back in and again. He's, he's like, oh my God, what have I done? Yeah, but the first time he eats brains, he breaks into the path lab and there are buckets of brains sitting there. Yeah. And Dr. Block comes through and finds him sitting there kind of chowing down. And that's the point at which the pineal gland goes in and there's this moment of realisation of what the fuck am I eating? Yeah, especially as up until that point, all we'd seen it as on the screen was just this purple image in a bucket. But, I mean, of course, you know, brains in buckets aren't good enough, really. And when he's got the live brain in front of him, he discovers, a, you, you know, a nice trick of how to consume a brain, you know, from a live person without cracking open the head. Yeah, suck yeah. it out through the eye socket. Suck the eye out. Mm. And then Tasty. get to the juicy insides. It's all about getting the fresh, uh, the freshness, isn't it, again? Yeah. <laughs> like in any good horror, um, horror fashion, they have to go back to the scene of the crime again. 
and head back to the house, which, with the moment, I think this is the, the, the bit in the whole film that got me going, what the fuck the most? Uh, uh, what? Where is, does it say on air sheet demolitions? How does a, a psychiatrist <laughs> suddenly know how to build a goddamn bomb? Well, I've got, uh, I've got it written down. Where does Barbara get the dynamite from? Because it just suddenly appears. Yeah. <laughs> but, 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 it's, but it's not just dynamite. I mean, it is this <laughs> elaborately constructed time bomb. Yeah. yeah complete <laughs> with clicking you know, display and, and nicely bound wires and sticks of dynamite and stuff like that. I mean, this looks yeah, really professional. Yeah, and I love the fact that yeah, it's got this big LCD display on it showing, you know, five. <laughs> minutes very modern yeah maybe, maybe, maybe she was a member of the weather underground in the early 70s or something <laughs> and just all of a sudden decides to set that up and then yeah five minutes be fine i'm gonna take a nonchalant walk downstairs nothing could probably go wrong oh and look i just get pulled into the sex, sex dungeon again oh and and, and strapped up uh, yeah. by manacles from the ceiling but, but then she you know has a great idea this would be a great idea for a player as well if they were in that situation mm -hmm. for their investigator to get free we know that things from beyond, because the resonator then turns itself on, which I think is quite cool. The resonator plugs itself in earlier and kind of gets itself going and it does it again. She finds that just wiggling her arms around, she can get the monsters from beyond to come and bite, binding on her wrists, and set her free. Yeah, again, this is the kind of thing where if I were running it in a game, I'd really want this to be a pushed roll that went wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you're free. You don't have any hands anymore, but you're free. Yeah, yeah. you can get your wrists <laughs> out quite easily. <laughs> the, the one you attracted had a much bigger mouth than you wanted. Mm. Of course, she does get free, decides to run back upstairs towards the bomb. Through the water. Yeah, through the get, floods of water. Again, why, why head back towards a bomb? This doesn't make any sense. Only to then have Tillingas run after her be eaten by Pretorius and they have an internal battle of much goo, more goo than I've seen on screen since probably Ghostbusters and eventually she rides the rides the shockwave of the blast throwing up, flying herself out of the window yes and, and yeah, there's a nice bit of gore effects as well where she's broken her leg on the landing and you've got the bone sticking out mm. yeah. I yes. thought that might be happening but I wasn't quite sure <laughs> yeah, it's just like moving too quick in the. Oh, my Frickerovision. All I can see was sort of like a bit of a mashed up knee. And she lands at the feet of the old lady, the neighbour, who earlier had the great line when she was calling the police about, um, you said if there was another disturbance that you'd send a squad car. Well, I'm disturbed! <laughs> but the, the end, I thought, the, the very end, I thought was probably one of the weaker parts. With this, oh, of course, that she's gone crazy now and will descend into cackling mad laughter. I thought, oh, that's a bit of a lame. She top does out pretty really. good cackling mad laughter. I thought yeah, it was I quite effective, it. actually. Yeah. Yeah. I, th yeah, I thought I it was, it was a nice thought, ending, actually. I thought it was a classic Call of Cthulhu investigative yeah. ending. That, that kind of combination of laughter and tears and manic laughter. And just the, it ate him, it ate his head. <laughs> Yeah. I think Jeffrey Coombs gets a lot of credit in these films, but Barbara Crampton deserves a lot as well. I mean, she played a lot of different roles in that, from from mad woman to kind of serious psychiatrist, and and then you know the the kind of sex slave thing, and you know all these different roles in there. And she does a great job of it. Yeah, I mean, she well, she was in a number of, of Gordon's films. Though. She was in Castle Freak as well, and yeah, I mean, she's obviously a very versatile actress. Yeah, yeah. finally, a look at how we can use all this stuff for gaming. As this is ostensibly a gaming podcast, we had better think about what we can learn for gaming from this. The one that kind of stands out for me, really, is having... It's almost like the Watchmen 
um, lesson of Ozymandias turning around and saying, oh, why, why do you think I'm some kind of villain? I'm just going to give a, um, a big um, explanation when I kicked off my plan half an hour ago. Um, I like Hill's, oh yes, but I've got something you hadn't foreseen. And then just suddenly turning, oh yeah, all those bodies that were just forgotten about just suddenly become a lot more of a problem. Having something signposted quite subtly, but then having a really big, really big payoff. At the that was end. a great escalation. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, I think also that kind of that mirrors that is the fact that you've got, it, the film is about Herbert West Reanimator and, you know, he's doing not very nice things. But there's also another villain in the background that becomes apparent halfway through, yeah. and uh, that's yeah, it. the real baddie isn't who you thought it was going to be. Yeah, well, which it, is a good it, thing in a story. Yeah, I mean, Reanimator is a strange film to talk about heroes and villains with. I mean, it's much more you know protagonists and antagonists. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, Her- Herbert West is motivated by noble things, but he does you know absolutely horrible actions in pursuit of his goals. What makes Hill the villain of the piece is the fact that he. You know, does all the horrible things as well, but doesn't really have the nobility to back it up. He is like the worst aspects of West yes. uh, brought to life. Yeah, and I think in a gaming term, it's that you know players are quite can easily set off on who they think is the villain, and sometimes you know that they may be correct that it is a villain, but actually it's not the real villain. And, and it's also the fact that your average Call of Cthulhu investigator in a game will quite happily do really horrible things in pursuit of their goal because yes. they're seeing this as you know saving the world or whatever it's never a, a real stretch to go back and try to portray the events that you know that, that investigators have carried out in terms of villainous actions yeah and they see it as a mission to be fulfilled and if that means killing people in cold blood often they will do it Yes, and what the animator kind of demonstrates is, is that there are consequences to those actions. Yeah. yeah, because you know, with Dean Halsey coming down, you know, they reanimate him, and there's a consequence to having him reanimated, and and uh, that affects their relationships with other characters as well. It's a, it's a difficult thing to write into a scenario ahead of time, and I think it's much more a skill for a GM at the table, which is to think about the consequences of the actions the players are taking and then find ways of reflecting that back. This, I think, is one of the great things that creates story at the table. It is that cycle of action and consequence, and you know that, that wonderful feeling of things just spiralling out of control. I think you know, we, sh- we already kind of know, but um, they, it does demonstrate very suitably, particularly Reanimator, is that you know, comedy and horror are you know good bedfellows and and can work well in a game. Yeah, I, and particularly for Call of Cthulhu, I mean, it's quite you know a lot of Call of Cthulhu scenarios are written in a very serious way and is about the subtle revelation of horror and you you quite often build up to pretty horrible and gruesome things, but it is um, it is about atmosphere and mood and so on. And I think one of the great lessons from you know, Reanimator is that Lovecraftian elements work just as well in a balls to the wall gonzo way. But I, I guess perhaps it's easier to write a scenario which is serious and for people to bring their own blend of humour to it, because every group's going to have their own take on humour, whereas a serious setup and so on, that could be presented to any group. But if you try and present them with humour, it, it might fall flat. Yes, oh, yeah. and, and, it's, and it can be quite hard to uh, portray humour in just in the written word on yeah. the page, in terms, particularly in terms of a scenario. Yeah. Um, so I think yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, the, uh, you, you've got to bring the comedy that's appropriate to 
you and your group of players. Yeah, I when I've tried to do funny games in the past, I have never, either as a GM or as a writer, thought, you know, I'll sit down and put jokes and, and so on in this. What what I tend to do is think more in terms of, you know, what is you know, what will provide a good vehicle for the players bringing the humour to this in play. And a lot of the time it is it is actually the circumstance and situation you, you arrive in that you may not have foreseen or have foreseen but didn't realise it would take place in quite the same manner. Yes. And actually the actual current situation, you, you can just take take a slight step back momentarily and realise the humour in it. And and that can be something you can either decide to play with or you know just keep in the back of your head and carry on with the, the tone that you have at the moment if it's working for you. So what would you recommend, Mike, if, if I'm writing a scenario and I want to inject humour, should I just put brackets, insert parrot shop sketch here. I, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that, 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 most, that would that work really well. settings and genres, I find. <laughs> the parrot has gone. <laughs> and everybody can join in with that as well, because it brings you know it brings everyone together. Yeah, you'll all stop for a 10-minute Monty Python reenactment. Yeah, and, um, yeah that, that, that shouldn't disrupt the game flow at all. <laughs> but, but, yeah, I mean, fundamentally, there is nothing more fun than reciting something that someone else has written. You know, there, there's no room for spontaneity in humour. So you read some, you read some <laughs> Lovecraft and some Monty Python, and that's what you were saying, Scott. Essentially, that's what I'm taking that, that humour and horror work so well together. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that, it's, it's, and it's that as simple as that, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. I, hope I, the, I wouldn't. I wouldn't, think, listeners I, I wouldn't think about it away. at all. Yeah. <laughs> Throw in some Terry Pratchett, and you've got a winner. <laughs> One thing I noticed in the film uh, was the great improvised weapons. When Kane is disturbed in the middle of the night, he, he jumps out of his bed and grabs a massive baseball bat that just happens to be by his bed. I don't know if every American has a baseball bat by their bed, but, you know, I don't. So he runs out with that, which is obviously a great weapon. And then down in the cellar, West grabs the, the shovel to behead Dr. Hill. It's not just any old shovel. It's one of those, we don't have these, these American-style shovels. Like seven big, foot long, is big it? head, <laughs> and the handle must be about, yeah, about seven, seven or eight foot long. They're, they're massive. Coombs might also just be very short. No, they do have very long-handed shovels that we don't that tend is, to see yeah. here. There's no grip on the end, it's just a no, straight it's pole. No, just a straight well, pole. You'd have to be a giant to need a grip like on a the end. Like a pole arm, almost. Yeah, yeah I, I think it might be one that's designed more for shoveling defense. snow. <laughs> <laughs> it's a home defence model. Yeah, 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 like the short it. shotguns, yeah. yes. long shovels. Yeah. That's, that's how it works. Yeah, for shoveling snow. Who needs a 10-foot pole? Yeah, what's better than a 10-foot pole? A ten-foot pole with a shovel on the end. <laughs> Remember, shovels don't kill people. People kill people. Herbert West kills people. <laughs> no, he brings but them back. He, he brings <laughs> them back. So, <laughs> so he it's all all right. yeah. Yes. The yin and the yang. And and of course, with improvised weapons as well, that bone saw. Oh, oh yes. yes. Well, that's to put down one of the uh, the zombies, isn't it? The yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So just just starting the back and punching all the way through to the front. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a great scene. Might take yeah. a while, but I'll get there. Get yeah. in there and out. I fear if I did that, you know, we'd have some person at the table that'd use the bone saw and they'd say, well, they don't work like that. <laughs> well, the answer to that, the Let's answer to it. that is always, it, that, that's the way they work in this game. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing I take inspiration from is how freely Gordon and Paulie and Yasna screw around with the source material. These are very free adaptations. They sort of take some parts of the tone of Lovecraft, some elements, but turn at the same time turn them into something that is entirely their own. This is sort of having affection for the source material without feeling constrained by it. 
I was going to say, the sex dungeon is really canon. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if he were writing scenarios rather than making great films, then uh, I think they'd be great scenarios. They'd be great fun to play. They they wouldn't be purist Lovecraft in the slightest way. As long as they're fun to play at the table and as long as, you know, they they have that degree of affection for Lovecraft, then, you know, why not? You could see as much Lovecraft in them as quite a few Call of Cthulhu scenarios I've played, I'd guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, take the, you know, take the... The Pretorius monster, you know, Gordon based off a of Shoggoth. It's not instantly recognisable to us as a Shoggoth in terms of what we'd expect to see in terms of on, on the what your standard Shoggoth looks like around the gaming table. But that doesn't mean it can't be a Shoggoth, and it doesn't mean that Shoggoth can't look that way or work a different way to the one in the, you know, the one that's in the rulebook, effectively. And yeah. also, you know, the fact that he did have that inspiration, you know, even if we couldn't identify it, made it feel you know very Lovecraftian in its execution. Yeah. Now that we've reviewed those two films, how do we feel about Stuart, Stuart Gordon's output? How do they rank? Very highly, I'd say. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed them. Yes, same here. I, he is one of my favourite horror filmmakers, and I've enjoyed, I mean, not just the Lovecraft adaptations that he's done, but, you know, he, he has got a, a gift for the disturbing. Particularly in some of his non-Lovecraftian films, where it's almost everyday situations that are completely twisted and you know I'd, I'd recommend uh, watching Stuck and certainly King of the Ants but that is pretty <laughs> yeah I, we, we've talked about how disturbing you know some of the elements in uh, From Beyond and Reanimator are King of the Ants is fucked up in a whole different way yeah yeah it certainly will stay with you best film Reanimator no Dagon Matt I'll side with Mike on that say so Dagon out of the three out of the three films I think is the best one, but for probably different reasons. Scott? I, I do like Dagon, but I, I don't know whether it's just nostalgia, uh, the fact that I used to watch Reanimator over and over again with my friends Dave and Sol in New York, uh, and we, you know, we, we, we got to the stage where we'd know the film off by heart, and we'd just sit there reciting lines of dialogue. I can kind of see Reanimator has more rewatchability yeah. of, of, the, of the three that we've... Well, of those two, certainly. Yeah, so yeah, Reanimator would definitely be my favourite. Yeah, you know, Dagon not too far behind. Yeah, and I think it's the same for me, but in reverse. Yeah, cool. If you're on Netflix, um, check out Reanimator. They've got a 4K high def version, really, really well remastered. Is that looks with great. the special vision that you watch? Obviously, it. you need to put a filter <laughs> over it to get that that proper, you know, that proper effect. Ju- yeah. ju- ju- just smear icor all over your screen, except for that circle in the middle, and, and yeah. Yeah, you can see the world the way that Paul does. Yeah, <laughs> I need to get some spectacles with that effect built in. Okay, well, there's some good films there for you to go out and watch if you haven't already seen them. Uh, let us know what you think, and if you have seen them, see them again. They're good. Good night, or indeed, good afternoon, from me, and cheerio from me, and farewell from me. Toodle pip from me. And now they'll tell you about where their website is. Oh, fucking again. <laughs> <laughs>
We've got to keep that in. Let's <laughs> go. That's going in every episode. <laughs>